Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Nate Larkin, and joining me back at home on the West Coast is uh, our co-host, Ashley, the head honcho, who's, who are we kidding, Aaron Porter. How you doing, Aaron? Doing all right. Doing all right. It's good. Uh, when last we spoke on last week's episode, uh, you were not at home. And uh, you were, uh, I think you were about to borrow a truck. Yeah, I was stranded, <laughs> stranded in Tehama, California. Wow. Uh, so how did it work out? How did you and Abby get back home? Well, all right. So I, I see a lot of providence in this, but I, I'm also aware that there's a used car involved. So if it breaks down next week, I won't blame God. But okay. I just that's my preface, uh, protecting God's integrity <laughs> and my possible lack of insight. <laughs> so, yeah, car got totaled uh, the day before we did the podcast last week. And so we were stranded and I thought, man, I'm, I'm two hours from Sacramento. I'm an hour from Reading. There's got to be a lot of used cars around here, even more than back where I'm from. So for the two months prior, this is important. Uh, my second son is going to get his license in September, and I had told him that he could buy my Toyota Corolla for $1,000 because I wanted him to save up some of his money for it and, you know, have some buy-in. And so I had been looking for other cars, and I thought I can maybe save like 3500 bucks between now and mid-September for a car. And so I found uh, the car I wanted, which was a Toyota Scion TC. I had always loved my friend's Toyota Celica from the early 2000s, and this kind of moved into the TC. They all had about 180,000 miles for that price, for like 3500 bucks. But I was looking into it, and I thought, that's what I, I think I'll get that. So here I am stranded in Tehama. The insurance calls me, tells me how much they're going to give me for my totaled Corolla, which, by the way, I feel like I got a good deal on that. Mm -hmm. And then I look up on Craigslist and within an hour find a Toyota Scion TC with only 85,000 miles and it cost $25 more than the insurance gave me. Wow. So I called a couple buddies who uh, gave us a ride to Sacramento and we bought the car and drove home on Thursday night. Wow, fantastic. So I feel like I just traded my car for that one, and I wouldn't have expected that. Now, there is kind of one unexpected, uh, I don't want to call it a downside, but it's not as exciting as if I was 25. This Toyota Scion uh, was owned by a person that evidently liked rice rockets. So they put a supercharger, a racing intake, a huge muffler. They lowered it and put racing springs. <laughs> so I've been mocked by everybody I work with for the last. Uh, <laughs> but it does go fast. So you got to be careful not to or else you get about, I don't know, one mile to the gallon if you decide to go that route. But if you take it easy, it's fine. It's good. <laughs> wow. So Jenny likes it because she knows when I'm getting home from about a half mile away. <laughs> 
Daddy will be home in 10 minutes. <laughs> I can't wait to see this vehicle. Yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to text you some pictures. Okay. It's pretty epic. Uh, the kids uh, are having fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Well, what's, what's going on in your world? Uh, you know, not, I, I, not much life, life marches on. Uh, I'm still obsessed with the upcoming walk with my daughter and preparations for that. Uh, you know, taking care of business day after day. You know, I, I had a conversation this morning with one of my guys that I walk with, uh, that in a weird way almost relates to your, your, um, Toyota story. Cause it, it's on an automotive theme with a recovery application. Pirate monks, the car addiction. <laughs> I mean, addition. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You're probably too young, um, Aaron, to remember when "Made in Japan" was synonymous with junk. Uh, okay, I'll yeah, okay. I'll, I'll let you have that. Yeah, yeah. But that's what it was in the '50s and the early '60s when I was a kid. If something was said "Made in Japan," you knew it was crap. Uh, and the same assumption. Uh, held true when Japanese cars first started making it into the American marketplace. People just laughed at those tinny things, and they were crap. Uh, But something very, very dramatic happened in the automotive workspace uh, marketplace in the 70s. And it came to a head, finally, when American manufacturers discovered that on a quality basis, they were getting their asses kicked by the Japanese. And uh, American consumers were shifting. Uh, what, what woke Ford up was they, uh, one of their models uh, offered two transmission. One was American-made. The other was J- Japanese-made. And American buyers began to specify the Japanese transmission, and they would wait for it. Um, Now, both transmissions were manufactured to the same specifications, but there was very – this kind of a a pivotal moment in Ford history when uh, the CEO of the company in front of, you know, the annual meeting held up their transmission against the one made by the Japanese – and showed that that Japanese, while, while theirs was within tolerances, the Japanese one was practically freaking perfect. And he said, we've got to learn to um, build this kind of quality if we're going to stay in business. And so there's been a huge quality move. Now, here's the backstory to that. The move to quality in Japanese manufacturing, not just automotive manufacturing, but really across all sectors, was led uh, inspired and led by an American engineer, a guy named W. Edwards Deming, who uh, he was an engineer, electrical engineer, quality guy who was brought to Japan at the request of uh, Douglas MacArthur. MacArthur was frustrated that he couldn't make a phone call uh, across the island without the call being dropped. And um, so Ed- Deming came over and began to preach uh, principles of quality improvement eventually was invited to speak for a national engineering uh, body in Japan and then became kind of a prophet to the automotive industry. And he said, yeah, you're, if you want to improve, um, you have to change your whole philosophy of uh, 
manufacturing and production. And so um, he said, uh, well, well, I'm not going to go through the whole Deming philosophy. It's, I mean, there's a lot to it. But here, here, here are the things that were striking about um, a, philo- a factory that operated under his principles. For one, he said, we have to eliminate fear from the factory floor. Hmm. Nobody can get fired for making a mistake. Uh, if, 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 if you can get fired for making a mistake, you're just going to cover up your mistakes. So nobody can get fired for making a mistake. Um, we're going to go ahead and we're just going to monitor uh, performance. We're just going to measure. Uh, and everybody on the factory floor has equal authority to shut the line down at any time to make any kind of improvement they want to make. Um, and that kind of, because he said, you know, we've got to, we've got to do this as a team and progress really is incremental. We're never going to be perfect. Um, it's all about constant incremental improvement that's done in an atmosphere of grace and mutual respect. Hmm. And uh, so, uh, you know, the old way of doing it was to have, you know, inspectors who would come along and, you know, sample pieces, just pull a sample off the line. And, man, if you could trace a defect to somebody, they were in big trouble uh, and just trying to control outcomes at the end. And instead, this focus, this non-judgmental focus upon process is what brought about radic- over time, incredible quality improvement. Wow. Uh, I see a huge application there to recovery because what we want to do is, is uh, improve. And my experience is that that improvement always comes if it's genuine. Uh, we can try to impose it from the outside with fear, with policing, with, you know, administrative structures. Uh, Accountability but, partners. Yeah. Isn't uh, that what an accountability partner is? Someone that gets to pull something off the line and see whose fault the defect is? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But uh, when, when it's understood that nobody is perfect all the time, that everybody has the right and actually is encouraged and has the obligation and is rewarded, by the way, for closing, shutting down the line in order to fix something. Um, boy, doesn't that go with the, the testimony principle when, you know, somebody will come to a meeting, uh, Samson meeting or something, and they'll give the testimony of, I had a hard, hard week last week, struggling with these things and they're trying to say, but it's all done. So don't anybody worry about me. Don't anyone, you know, we don't have to talk about it. And the question that we've always encouraged is, well, who did you call last week when it was happening? Well, we're yeah. not as interested in the testimonies as like real time because that's the picture of them not shutting it down when it needed to be shut down. Right, right, right. Just right. letting it keep going. Yeah. And the more, I think the idea that is honored in the Samson culture is you stopped. There was something you saw that needed yeah. to be addressed and you stopped it now. And we honor that because that was harder 
than working it out by yourself and then telling a, a little victory story a week later. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And uh, and I think also in Samson, learning from mistakes and failures, we can uh, we can take um, a mistake and ex- actually examine it without fear and without recrimination, so that we can make adjustments and do it lay- do it better a second time. M- mistakes, uh, yeah. mistakes is a very short term kind of thought, isn't it? Because if, yeah. if you knew that the mistake, oh, we'll stay with building the car. We might add a princess and make it a coach later, but you know, that's okay. Uh, okay. 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 Uh, if you knew that today's mistake was going to bring about the next engineering shift, then we still could call it a mistake, but we certainly wouldn't be sad it happened. Right. Sure. If it alerted us to a change we could make that would change everything. Right. So the idea of mistakes is usually talking about wallowing in the moment instead Mm -hmm. of realizing that God can do amazingly important things because you, you acknowledge there was a mistake. Yeah. 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 All right. So anyway, there, there, there's my, there's my automotive story. Good story. I, I like this uh, automotive edition. This is fun. We should have a theme every week. <laughs> well, now, um, you know, uh, car shows, uh, car calendars um, all have one thing in common. They all have, you always got to have a lady present. You got to make the car look good. You have to have a girl. So I think maybe for the second half of the show, we got to see if we can find a woman who can come in. Sorry, that just that just made me think. Ford initially thought they could change this shift with the Japanese models being better by actually putting a Japanese model <laughs> and convincing people that was their Japanese model. It's just it popped into my head. So yeah, you yeah. were saying we ought to get a woman to complete this picture, although that you're basically hearkening to girls in bikini calendars and if we had a lady guest i don't feel like this is the best introduction no probably not (laughs) but we'll see if the sexism can continue when we come back with possibly a female guest here on the pirate monk podcast on the Pirate Monk Podcast with a special guest today joining us from Austin, Texas, Lynn Cherry. Uh, Hi, Lynn. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me today. 
Oh, well, anybody who is willing to tell their story uh, and do so honestly, authentically, humbly in a way that can bring redemption to the lives of other people is more than welcome on this podcast. And we're so grateful that you took the time today out of a very busy day uh, to join us. You've been running around doing interviews. What's going on down there in Austin? I have been. Well, there's, there's a lot happening. Uh, this when we're recording this podcast, there is an awareness day coming up, Infidelity Hurts Awareness Day. And so I've just been able to network with some of our local television stations and do some interviews and, and kind of bring the, the pain of this issue out behind that curtain of shame and say, let's have a conversation about this. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Now, that's I've wonderful. Never, I've never even heard of this before. How, how does... I mean, are you like the only one who knows and now the people in your community because of the news? Yeah, so it was actually founded by Christina Ferguson four years ago. She's in D.C. And I think that I discovered it last year on Facebook. I tuned into her virtual summit that she did online. Um, this year, I actually got to record a segment and be part of the virtual summit that's going to play on um, Saturday, May 5th. So. Yeah, it, this is, next year will be the fifth anniversary of the Awareness Day, so it's fairly new, and hopefully word will get around. Wow. Cool. Infidelity Hurts Awareness Day. All right, look, we got we to track with that, Aaron, don't we? We do. Okay. And, go ahead. Uh, Lynn, you've got, a, uh, you've got a book out, a very helpful devotional guide called Keep Walking, 40 Days to Hope and Freedom After Betrayal. Um let's do this. Let's, would you start out just by uh, telling us your own story? I don't imagine that when you were a young girl and dreaming of being a princess and a wife or whatever it was you dreamed of, that you thought you'd write that book. No, I thought I might write a book, but certainly uh -huh. not, not one on betrayal that I was qualified to write. So, yeah. <laughs> You thought maybe you'd write a Disney love story? That's uh, I was going to live a Disney love story, and then I turned out not to be the prince. Mm. Oh, come on. Hashtag inadvertent sexism. Maybe she wanted to write about being an astronaut or a scientist, Nate. Why is it all obsessed with Disney? Okay. Okay, go on, Lynn. You know, absolutely. I was going to be a biologist. I have a degree in biology and a minor in chemistry, so I'm definitely more on the – science nerd end rather than the princess end. <laughs> wow. I'm turning crimson here. I am so embarrassed. I am so embarrassed. Totally I went okay. I am not okay. offended. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, they'll get me shot in some places. Okay, go ahead. So sure, let me tell a little bit of my story and you know, it's, it's a, of course, it's a long story um, drawn out over many years because of the baggage that both of my husband and I brought into our marriage. Um, he, he came with pornography that uh, was a part of his life from the time he was seven years old. Wow. And I came with a lifelong habit of coping with life through denial. Mm -hmm. I like to say that our, our life luggage was a matching set. No, it worked for a long time because he had this, this secret life and I was willing to pretend that nothing was wrong. And that's really how we lived for a, a long, for many years. 
it wasn't until 2000 that I actually walked in on him while he was looking at pornography. So then, you know, this thing that's not quite right is right in front of my eyes. And yet still, um, I, I had a newborn, I had a three-year-old sleeping in his big boy bed, and my mom was on the sofa bed. And I just, uh, there was no space in my, my mind to go there at that moment. Mm. And so I chose denial, fell back on my trusting, trusting coping with denial. And so for four years then, after that night, uh, just pretended. I, I look back though, and I think I began a slow process of dying that night. Mm. It really felt like the death of me, that I would probably never be happy. Um, I would, I, I was just surviving, just existing. I, I wanted, I wasn't willing to let go of my children's happiness. And so I, I, it really became about keeping this family together so that my boys would have a home. Uh, but something shifted after about four years, and I got angry. Mm. And I, I thank God for my anger because I was okay being sad, and I was okay being lonely, but the anger scared me. And so that was my wake-up call, like, I have to do something. I, I can't pretend about this anymore. Plus, I have two boys. So I have these two little boys, and I'm seeing their life with a dad who's involved in sexual addiction, and, and I, don't, I don't want them to grow up in that home. Was that, was that what happened at year four? Or was there something else that turned uh, the, the denial into anger? I think I just ran out of room to stuff things inside. I think there were a couple other factors that did help me to have some courage and have some hope. I had another friend share a story with me about how she'd been through an emotional attachment with her husband and another woman. And I remember seeing her across the table at the coffee shop and thinking she's on the other side of the pain I'm drowning in. And I remember just believing that if there was an other side for her, there had to be an other side for me. And that I found hope. I felt hope for the first time in a long time. Mm. And along with that, I'd gone to a women's conference. Nate, you'll appreciate this because there were princess skits before every <laughs> segment. But one of the princesses, anytime something stressful happened, she would collapse to the stage and sleep through the rest of the scene. Oh. And it was hilarious, you know, Sleeping Beauty's narcoleptic, and it was so funny. But about the fourth session, I saw her do that, just keel over and lay there on the stage. The other girls had to drag her off by her arms like dead weight. And I just remember the Holy Spirit really speaking to my heart saying, it's time to wake up. You can't sleep through this anymore. You have to face this. And, and now's the time. Wow. Were you aware of ongoing issues with your husband during those four years? Or did you just kind of think, I don't want to know. And I'll choose to believe that whatever excuses he made at the beginning stuck. No, I absolutely chose not to know. And I would walk by our home office and the door would be closed and, and I just didn't open it. Hmm. it. It was, you know, it's so painful. Gosh, it, it's so hard because even though his, his uh, use of pornography wasn't about me, it felt like it was. Mm -hmm. It felt like uh, it was a failure on my part. 
Um, you know, if I was just something more than, than my regular self, maybe my husband wouldn't have this problem. And, you know, his secret became my secret. His shame became my shame. Mm. So I really just, um, I tried to avoid it. So I love that you brought up anger because that is a scary emotion for most people. And understanding the line between appropriate and helpful anger, righteous anger, the kind of anger that God himself uh, is a part of his character versus the kind of anger that consumes us is sometimes a gray area. So what was the fruit of this anger that came up for you? I, I think the greatest fruit of that anger was that it forced my hand. It, it did scare me. Um, I remember thinking, I don't like who I'm becoming. And also feeling like I'd become a little bit of a bully as a mom. And, you know, I wasn't big enough and strong enough to control my husband, but I was big enough and strong enough to control my children. Hmm. So there were some moments where I, I just thought, I am not parenting well, and this is scary, and I don't want to become that person. So, so it, really, it really woke me up to, like, to, to admitting I needed help. Yeah, yeah. So who would have thought that the Prince of Peace woke you up with a kiss and the emotion out, out of that was anger uh, to start the journey you needed to go on? Mm. Yeah, I love the yeah. way you put that. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, this I'm sure, although it wasn't a gift he was looking for, turned out to be a gift for your husband because your anger gave him the motivation he needed. Yeah, uh, brought him to a point of crisis, right? It did. You know, I went home from that women's conference and I, I just can take you to the, the place. Um, he was standing at the foot of our bed and I was sitting on the bed and I, I confronted him and I said, we need help. I need help. You need help. I've made an appointment with a therapist and I want you to come with me. But whether or not you come with me, I have to go. Yeah. And, you know, for him, that was that was the beginning of help. And he, he looks back at that and that did not feel like a loving conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, that was scary and volatile. And, but, but he looks back at that moment and thinks, you know, that was one of the greatest acts of love in our mm-hmm. marriage for me mm-hmm. to confront him and say, we need help and, and let's do this together. Mm. So what was the, what did the journey look like after that? You go to a counseling meeting, you're starting to move towards health, but you don't even know what that looks like, I'm sure. No, and as someone who is very gifted at denial, uh, therapy was torture for me. Um, you know, that's, that, that was when hope started to rise for my husband, and he saw he's not alone. There are tools and strategies that can help him. There's a way out of coping with life through pornography. And so he found hope very quickly. Um, but for me, I remember about week four thinking, pretending was better. Yeah. <laughs> I just yeah. think I could keep pretending like that would be nicer than having to look at this wound. Um, I mean, therapy did feel like my weekly wound scraping, just um, it was brutal to have to own the reality of my life. And I think that's on me. That's on me for pretending and coping with denial for eight years. I, I made recovery harder for myself than it needed to be. 
But at the same time, you know, I just, ha- I, I have to trust God that that was the right time for us. That mm-hmm. was the right time for us to, to get help and to move forward. Yeah. So uh, your marriage survived, I imagine. Uh, now I'm projecting, of course, my own experience and my wife Allie's experience onto yours. So I'm sure our lives were not alike in every respect. But I remember there was some there was some white water. There were some tough emotional times, some strained you know, days and weeks in our house. What what was it like for you navigating the early months, uh, weeks, months, and years of recovery? Yeah, it was very turbulent. Uh, Just, you know, someone breaking uh, an addictive habit that had been a part of their lives for decades and then trying to coexist with someone who's dealing with the trauma of betrayal. uh, It was rough. It was really rough for a while. We had uh, Friday fight day. (laughs) It was a thing. We named it. Um, Thursdays, we went to therapy. And so, you know, of course, that stirred the pot and um, brought up a lot of issues. And so Fridays, the boys were at school. And so it was the one day that my husband and I are home alone together and the boys aren't there. They were a little bit of a buffer. You know, we really mm-hmm. tried hard to 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 not argue or fight in front of them. So Fridays were, uh, I remember just going to bed Thursday night and thinking Friday's coming. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, there was a lot of conflict and there were a lot of really awkward conversations. You know, one, one thing that I look back on that season and I just see how God used it now is um, I, I started to deal with anxiety and chest pain and insomnia and I would try to go to sleep at night and I would just lay in bed thinking I'm probably going to die because mm-hmm. my heart's going crazy. And I went to the doctor and got my heart checked out and um, it was fine, physically fine. But the, the pain was very real. And I remember mm-hmm. just being desperate and, and thinking I need someone to pray for me and asking my husband, like, will you pray for me? And, and even though I didn't want to, to pray for me. I didn't want to need anything from him. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to need anything from anybody. But in that moment, you know, I was so desperate and I turned to him and you no, know, we both had to humble ourselves at that point. But God used those prayers to turn our hearts back toward each other. Mm-hmm. And for me to realize he really did love me. He loved me through, through it all. Yeah. Um, and that, that, uh, I could trust him again and that he could be someone I depended on. And so those prayers were a big part of, of how God healed and, and brought some, just some peace into the chaos of that recovery. So how long did the anger last before you saw it start to change into <clears throat> compassion for yourself and your husband and that, that trust that started to overwhelm mm-hmm. the bitterness um, how, how long did that take? And was it a slow movement or did you see some like moments where it just kind of broke off? Right. Gosh, I wish I had a timeline, you know, mm-hmm. I don't really know for sure. I would say we did 48 weeks of therapy. So we did two 12 week sessions with couples and then I did two 12 week sessions with other betrayed spouses. And, um, somewhere in the course of that recovery, I remember feeling like 
my, I was watching my husband do the work. You know, I was watching him change. And I saw the fruit of change in his life. I saw him own the pain that he had caused me. Um, he wrote me a lot of letters. I think letters were easier because sometimes I was hard to talk to. Mm-hmm. So he wrote me beautiful letters and, and, you know, I'm so sorry for the pain that you're dealing with. And I know it, I caused it and I hate that I caused that pain in your life. And, and I watched, I watched him change. I watched the fruit of change in his life begin to grow. And so somewhere along the line, I remember our, our therapist challenging those of us in our group, you know, what do you feel God is asking you to do? And I'm like, I don't know. I just assumed, you know, I stay here and keep trying to work this out. But, but I did, I took it to the Lord in prayer. I'm like, Lord, what do you want me to do? And I was reading the book captivating by Stacy Eldridge. And there was a little phrase in there where she talks about the Hebrew word for Eve, Azer Kenedgo. And and uh, they say in the book that that's only used 20 other times in the entire Old Testament. And every other time, it's referring to God when he comes through for you in a desperate situation. And I just remember reading that and feeling like God spoke to me in that book. Like, will you come through for my son? Mm-hmm. Will you walk alongside of him? And I think for the first time, I saw my husband as God's beloved son. No, not just as the man who had crushed me and hurt me and caused me this deep pain, but as just another one of God's children that was broken. And was I willing to walk alongside of him? And I think in that God was letting me know that there was hope for us to walk through this together. Mm-hmm. And um, just, I remember not being super thrilled about that little revelation. <laughs> <laughs> But also feeling like, yes, you know, yes, I, I see we're all broken. We're all trying to figure out life. We're all broken and we all need a savior and, and I will walk with him. So that was probably early on where that sort of helped to dissipate the anger. And I saw my husband with some empathy for the first time. And, and later on in recovery, how I w- my guess would be like at least in the second year I had found this scripture, Psalm 143. It had the word soul in it five times, and I knew God had a word for me in that passage. So I printed it out in all these different versions of the Bible and carried it around in my bag. And I, one night, it's just like the light came on. And one of the verses, at the beginning, he says, my soul is crushed. The enemy has crushed my soul. And then in another verse, it says, I lift my soul to you. And I saw that I was carrying around my wounded soul like a trophy of all I had survived. And in a way, with a little bit of self-righteousness, holding that over my husband's head. Like, you hurt me, but I'm a survivor, and I'm going to make it. And just feeling convicted that if I wanted, you know, here we were both walking these independent recovery journeys, but if I wanted my relationship to be restored, at some point I had to let go of that. I had to let go of my right to be angry. I had to let go of my self-righteousness. I had to release that wounded soul, that survivor trophy and, and trust God with it. And so I know that that 
that was a moment of really letting go of the anger. Hmm. So as a, as a wife, You've said a couple times you were both on your own recovery journeys, that you had to recover from denial. He was recovering from false intimacy. Both of those were self-soothing mechanisms in your life. So was there a point where you realized, oh, wait, I have put his uh, tool of self-soothing as a far worse thing than what I've been doing? And then did you come to a place of going, man, we're on the same journey, but with different tools, and my self-righteousness has kept me from realizing how much we're in this together. Yeah. Gosh, I don't know if I had a, a, a revelation like that. I think um, so much of it is just dealing with the trauma, mm. you know, dealing with the trauma that the betrayal caused me and thinking, well, he wasn't the man that I thought I married and um, working through the lying that comes along with addiction mm-hmm. So yeah. it's all, all part of it. And, yeah. and knowing that we each have our own sidewalk to sweep, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I think as awful as it is to walk through a crisis like this, it's an opportunity to, to do work on yourself that you might not have done without the pain. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Let me ask you this, Lynn. Um, we do have, uh, a good number of women listeners, but most of our listeners are guys. Most of our listeners are guys uh, who struggle with addiction and most of them with a sexual addiction. Uh, if you're talking right now to a guy who uh, uh, he's married, uh, they may be living in the same house. They may be separated, but uh, he just doesn't know, and, and he's starting to recognize how much pain he's caused. He lives in a lot of regret mm. and recrimination. Um, what are the practical things that you would suggest that he could do to help his wife through this extremely painful chapter that she's facing? Yeah, you know, first of all, I want to say that regret opens a door for us to begin again Mm -hmm. and to see it as, you know, allow it to motivate you to begin to change. Mm -hmm. Um, There were some very practical things my husband did that helped me heal. And, you know, the first one I think is he was honest, which was a challenge because I think that there was, there's this risk in his mind that if I tell my wife the truth, she's going to freak out. And then everything's going to get up, you know, upheaval again. But he was honest and, and even honest with his struggles. And, and, you know, that's a scary place for a wife to hear about your husband's temptation or his weakness. But I realized the safest place for me to be is when my husband realized that he's weak and put safeguards in place so that he doesn't have to be strong. So for him to be honest and say, hey, I was tempted, um, or even there was actually a trip where I went away for a week, and he was flipping channels on TV, and it just took him a place that he would have rather not gone, and he confessed that to me. So that was that was a really big deal. And you know, that was, it was hard to hear, but at the same time, I knew how much of a risk it was for him to be honest in that moment. And so I valued 
his willingness to take that risk for the sake of having intimacy and honesty in our marriage. So I, I think honesty is, is scary, um, but really important. Wow. And so, the other, okay, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, I was going to shift gears to your advice to the women. So you have another one for guys. Oh, yeah, yeah. I have a few. I have a few. Okay. Yeah. So the other one is he answered my questions. You know, one of the, the things that was important to me in my recovery was understanding his history with pornography, knowing that pornography was a part of his life before I ever was. And so I asked him a lot of questions. And, I, you know, I know depending on what type of infidelity you might be dealing with, uh, all the details are not helpful. But mm-hmm. understanding, you know, that he was a child. He was a second grader when he first encountered pornography and and to see that little boy you know i had a seven-year-old boy and imagining what that was like for him to lose his innocence to this you know giant porn industry at age seven no i'm understanding some of the things of his past and having him be willing to answer my questions and go there to that dark place in his life um, ultimately that really helped me understand that it wasn't about me, even though it affected me. And that brought a lot of freedom mm. to me. The other thing is he was patient. Um, you know, he started to find, grab a hold of tools and find help fairly early on in our recovery process. And he was so, he was so grateful for that. Uh, it, uh, my recovery process was much slower. And so... At some point, I think he was like, hey, we took the 12-week class. Like, we should be good now. Let's let's move on. <laughs> but there was a lot more work that I had to do, and he was very patient to allow me the time and space to, to work my own recovery process and healing from that trauma. Um, a fourth thing he did is he, he owned his junk, you know? Um, I don't think that we would have used the word infidelity or affair before we started counseling. Um, and, and in my husband's mind, it, it was just pornography. It was just his issue that he had in this box in his brain, and it didn't affect anybody but him. So in group therapy, he realized it, it did affect me and that I had the same pain and the crazy emotions of a woman whose husband had been with an affair partner. And so he, he owned the reality of, of what that had done in my life. And then he did the work. I know I've already said that, but that was definitely part of what he did that helped me heal. He did the work. We installed covenant eyes on all of our devices. Um, he joined an accountability group. He met with them every week. No, and, and like I said before, I, I watched him change. I saw the fruit of change. And sometimes it's, it's easy to miss that. And, it, and it's just a small shift. And I think you have to be intentional about noticing it, about realizing, okay, normally we would have watched that movie, but now he's not willing to watch that movie. That means something's changed and something has shifted in his heart. And, and he put his whole heart into every session and every assignment we had. And then um, he just loved me well from a distance. Um, and, and he'll tell the story about how for a while he would like try to love me and do something sweet, expecting me to respond graciously. And I didn't always do that. And, you know, 
that was irritating <laughs> for him. And one day he had an encounter with a scripture where Jesus says, um, or Paul says, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And Jesus just spoke to him in that saying, you know, I loved the church who beat me, who spit on me, who yelled obscenities at me. I loved them then. And for him and for a season, he knew he just had to keep loving me through my anger and through my healing and was very kind. I wish wow. people could actually see you tell this story because what is written all over your face is how proud you are of him and the man he is. And I think there are a lot of guys that are around step one that are desperate and can only hope that their wife could talk about them with the look you have on your face. Mm. Yeah, you know, I feel, I do feel it. I feel so grateful for the work that he was willing to do. I feel honored that he chose freedom and that he chose to do the work. And there was a season where when I saw my husband, I saw my pain. It was like my pain was personified and walking around this house we were both trying to live in. And that, that was how, what I saw when I looked at him for a while. But you know, I don't see that anymore. Mm. And Jesus really has restored our, my soul, my husband's soul. He's restored our marriage. And, and we've been married now for 26 years. We celebrated, when we celebrated our 20th anniversary, I just remember feeling so much triumph. Like we made it through that hell. Mm -hmm. and, and even just having confidence, like celebrating that and having this confidence that, you know, um, if we can make it through that, like we can make it through anything. Mm -hmm. Well, what, where would you start in just briefly, you've written about it for women. They get in only 40 days, which, you know, you had 48 weeks, right? So right. you have found the shortcut. <laughs> no. Okay. So it's not um, a complete journey in 40 days. I, my heart with the book is just to really help women find a step. Mm -hmm. So um, one, one step, there's a daily affirmation with each each entry they're very short they're like one to two pages and I, I just it's so hard to wrap your mind around a big old book when you're dealing with the trauma and the pain of betrayal and I wanted to give a very practical and manageable tool so that's why my book is is um, doesn't weigh two pounds <laughs> <laughs> that's but that's encouraging for people going through stuff right now to know this is not here, go be an expert on, you know, sex addiction or recovery or all of that. But, hey, here's a simple tool that will keep your mind focused where it needs to be so that you can begin this process. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there were just so many days where it was hard to get out of bed and function. Um, you know, I had two boys I had to feed. You know, they weren't about to let me let them go hungry. So they kept me, kept me moving. But... Honestly, God just carried me with his word and there were so many songs and pictures and stories that just would see me through a day or a week or a month. And, and so I, I uh, 
had a spiral notebook full of stuff that helped me heal. And my husband and I both knew early on in the journey that we would share our story, that God mm -hmm. was asking us to share our story. And so um, that's where my book came out of. And so, yeah, very briefly, if you're a, a betrayed spouse, I think you're going to find a lot of comfort and practical steps and just uh, a gentle recovery companion in my book. That's awesome. And, I, and the, the title of the book again is Keep Walking, 40 I, Days to Hope and Freedom After Betrayal. What are you doing there, Aaron? This is Nate's wrap-up tone, but I, you said something that was important, so <laughs> yeah. I'm going to touch on before he says where to get the book. You said there were days that you just wanted to go back to sleep. And knowing that uh, that was the beginning of the journey was you being the sleeping beauty. Uh, Nate, yeah. we're keeping this in the princess realm so you'll understand. <laughs> okay, thank you. But... <laughs> <laughs> to know that it's it's not weird that those old habits will will want to rise back to the surface. You'll be looking for the spindle to prick your own finger on and go back to sleep. And that's oh. and you have to have other people. It's a very Samson concept. You can't do it alone. You have to tell yes. people where the spindle is hidden so they can guard you as much as you're trying to guard yourself. Right. I, I, you're so right. I did not walk the journey alone. Of course, I had my support group that I was a part of, two different support groups that I was a part of. And then I had three friends and uh, just three amazing women who sat with me in my pain, who um, handed me tissues when all I could do was cry. I couldn't even get a word out. But then who, who listened to me. And, and you're right. They were there. I remember one day at coming back from therapy, and we had fought all the way back. We worked together, too. So we came back to work, and we were fighting. And my husband got out of the minivan, and he got in his car, and he just took off. And I just remember feeling like, I have to chase him. Like, where is he going, and what's he going to do? And thinking, I drive a Honda Odyssey. Like, that, I have a pretty beefy engine. I could probably take him in his little car. But um, I called a lifeline, called my friend, and she's like, no. And we're not chasing after him. Like God has David. He has your husband and God has you. And she talked me off of that ledge. And there were so many times that, that those three girls really did talk me off the ledge and help me or make me laugh and make me believe that I wouldn't always be in that place. Wow. So, ladies, isolation is as bad for you as it is for the dudes. All right, Nate, you can finish your wrap-up and uh, thing you were doing. <laughs> oh, and I'm so glad that you extended the conversation to that final point because that's so powerful. Yeah, okay, uh, so we, uh, we highly recommend the book. It, it's available in fine bookstores everywhere, from Amazon.com. Hey, and also, Lynn, tell us about this conference that's coming up. Yes. So I am coming alongside AffairRecovery.com, and we are putting on a one-day conference for betrayed spouses. It's in Austin, Texas. It's on October 6th. There is uh, information and a registration link at AffairRecovery.com slash hope dash rising. 
And the conference is local. There'll, there will, you know, we're inviting um, attendees to come and join us in person. There's also going to be a live streaming option for people who can't make it to Austin. It's going to be a great event. We have Cindy Beal coming. She's going to be our keynote speaker. We'll also hear from the team of experts at Affair Recovery. I'm going to be speaking, and there are other betrayed spouses who are on the other side who will be sharing their story as well. Wow. All right. Well, how can people get a hold of you if they need to? Is there a, a, a good way? Yeah. Uh, my website is just lynnmariecherry.com. All right. There All right. it is. Thank you so much for being with us. Awesome. Love hearing from, uh, from the ladies' side of this issue. My and, privilege. And we will be right back here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. We are back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. I loved that conversation. It's really good. I I loved, I really did love watching her talk about her husband. Just, you know, the shift from the anger to the pride yeah. in him. You, you know, and it was it was even more than just love for him. It was like, I'm proud of what he did. He did hard work and I honor that. And I think guys want to feel that so badly from their wives. Yes. Be honored. Um, in that way. So it was awesome to see a wife give that so effortlessly. Yeah. Yeah. It was beautiful. Well, uh, if you have thoughts on today's episode, uh, and we really, it doesn't matter what those thoughts are. Uh, uh, you can agree, you can disagree, you can push back, you can suggest, uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can drop us a line at pirate monk podcast at gmail.com. That's piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Once again, that's piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Oh, I'm so glad you did that. It needs to be three times. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that does it for this week. Until next time, I'm Nate. And I'm Aaron. And we are your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Well, here in 